Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You guys going to school? Don't talk to me. I don't know you. Sorry. What's your favorite Inside Out character? Oh, Joy's my favorite. By far. How about I you? love Joy. I like Joy, too. It's a lie, though. It's a lie. You're going to chase your entire lives. I got married when I was young. How old are you? Eleven. Eleven? All right. Well, I met my wife in four years from now. That's when I met my wife at camp. And we got married. She's the only girl I've ever slept over. And then the other day, I came home because I was going to see a movie at the community center. But I didn't. I didn't know that would change my life. I caught her with a man. You know what that feels like? Uh, anger. Anger is right. Disgust? Disgust is right. Fear? Fear, yep, it was there. You know, we all make mistakes, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're friends, she's my wife. So I'm gonna go back and tell her that I'm sorry I left. She'll take me back, right? Why do you want her back? Because I love her. She's gonna make me cry. She gets it. <laughs> That's Pete Holmes uh, playing uh, a character, I think, named Pete Holmes, on the HBO series Crashing. It's one of the things we're going to talk about today on the nose down here in New Haven. So before I even introduce the guests, I have to say two New Haven things. I always talk about New Haven like it's this exotic foreign capital, like I'm in Cairo or something. So, um, so here are two exotic things about New Haven. As you come into New Haven today, as you get off the highway on the Trumbull Street exit, there's like this blinking light. That it sort of looks like... It's, sort of, it's like a, pole, a little pole sticking up from where the traffic light is, and it has this little blue flashing light. It sort of looks like the first Star Wars movie when George Lucas started to run out of money for special effects, you know? It's like not a very good thing, whatever it is. And then there's a little sign saying, if this is blinking, uh, there's a parking ban. So, which is a really good thing, because a lot of times you don't know whether there's a parking ban. I mean, the bad part of it is there's like no snow on the streets whatsoever. <laughs> there's no rational basis for a parking ban. So it's good that they tell you, but it's bad that they have a parking ban. And then the other thing I have to say is that um, it's it's fun to be here in New Haven because you can walk out the door where we do the show and you can like walk a few doors down and you can get a cup of coffee, you know, or a latte or something at Coffee with a K. Whereas in our Hartford studios, it's literally the case that there's almost nothing that you could walk out the door and walk a short distance and buy that is legal, that is not regulated by the DEA. So um, – so I went down to Coffee with the K, and they have, they have this little bulletin board, and it says things you're afraid of, or what are you afraid of, and then people put up these little post-it size answers to this, and uh, on one single post-it it said, "Being alone forever and snakes," <laughs> which I thought was like the best combination. That's like every that's all fear merged into like one little post-it. All right, so joining us today is Lucy Gelman, uh, a reporter for the New Haven Independent and station manager at WNHH. You actually claim that it, the, the flashing Star Wars light didn't even use to explain what it meant? I, I don't think it did. But uh, but the person, Colin, that you would want to talk to is Doug Housleyden, the director of transportation, traffic, and parking in New Haven. Maybe that would, we should call them the Doug light. 
The Doug, Doug Light. The Doug yeah. Light. I like Doug, the Doug if Light. you're yeah. listening. Yeah. It's the Doug Light. I'm not really interested enough in this to talk <laughs> to Doug But it's good to know who I could talk to if I were. Pedro, Pedro Soto is Chief Operating Officer at uh, Spacecraft Manufacturing in New Haven. Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian based in New Haven. We wanted to make sure we had at least one stand-up comedian on this show because, in fact, our first – well, actually, the whole show is going to be about comedy in one way or another. We're talking about crashing on HBO. We're talking about really – kind of fabulous, unusual, lengthy Q&A-style uh, interview given by David Letterman to New York Magazine. It's their cover story uh, in the current issue of New York Magazine. We'll also, if we have time, talk a little bit about some... Well, I think our, our, our conversation will wander down some ancillary pathways uh, to, uh, uh, to other comic topics. But anyway, let's begin. So, Sean Murray, since you're the stand-up comedian, you've got all the cred. This is yet another series uh, about... Being a comedian, you know, we've got Louie, we've got Seinfeld, we've got Lady Dynamite with Maria Bamford. I could go on and the Mulaney. I mean, there's an awful lot of shows about being a stand-up comedian. Is this one different? It is different uh, in the sense that I was talking to another comedian friend about this. I feel like Pete's show is one of the only shows that mentions how much comedy invades your personal life. Like, I feel like in Seinfeld... Seinfeld isn't about stand-up comedy at all. It's just his. It's just a job he does. And Louis, it's partially about that, but it's like Louis will. It's another show where it's like it's just a job he does, and then he goes pick up his kids, and then he crashes his motorcycle that he shouldn't have bought because it was a dumb decision. But where Pete's life is, um, Pete's show crashing is about like he wants to live in New York in a place where it's within driving distance of New York City, so he can go to open mics, and he has everything. Mm-hmm. He's every time he argues with his wife. In the first few episodes, it's about wanting to do comedy. Everything about that is about those two worlds meeting where a lot of the other shows, they don't meet as much. Even when they do, it's not like the day-to-day stuff isn't about stand-up comedy. It's about like the mundanities of American life. And Pedro, you asked a great question about like how many people – well, ask, ask your question. It's a great question. Oh, it, it's, it's sort of like um, I, uh, my analogy was with uh, superhero movies um, – and how many people see the movies uh, versus read the comic books? And 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 you know, no one reads the comic books anymore, but millions and millions of people see the movies. Right? Sort of the point. Of, the question I was asking is uh, how many people actually see stand-up comedy, uh, either live or or on video, versus how many people are seeing these shows that are about stand-up comedy. And this uh, Lucy, I think, is a little bit unusual uh, in terms of the character of Pete Holmes. Uh, he, as a comedian, has based this character a lot on himself, but maybe a little bit uh, on his former self, from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. So he's, uh, when he talks in that clip about meeting his wife in camp, he's talking about some kind of Christian mm-hmm. camp he went to. He's been raised as a Christian. In real life, Pete Holmes uh, grew up in the greater Massachusetts area, was, uh, I believe, attended, his family attended kind of a mega church uh, up there, and, you know, entered the comedy world probably with an awful lot of the Christian background. Um, and so that's a character we don't typically see. How does it work for you? Yeah, um, well, I think I would describe him as charming. Um, and, and to say that, you know, I don't love the series. I'm interested to see where it's going. I think I'll probably finish the season, definitely. But um, but 
it it was kind of charming and I don't know that I love every episode that I've seen so we've all seen three episodes at this point but it definitely has its moments and I loved that we started with the clip where he's talking about the inside out characters Mm -hmm. because that shows sort of this um, sweet obliviousness that he still has about him as someone who's going out in the world who's super passionate about comedy who still does love this woman who he's now kind of going through the process of divorcing um and uh, it's, I mean, it's interesting, Pedro, I think you, you had said, um, I'm, I'm interested to see where this goes and where the story arc goes. And, and I am too. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about, about him is that in, in the first few episodes, you see kind of like the quote unquote real comedians and, and they're all just broken. You can see that, you know, for them, co- comedy is, is it's, it's in their blood so much. Um, that that's the only thing they could conceive of themselves doing. And um, w- when he comes into this, y- you see it on the surface, obviously, like he's willing to to make all these decisions and right, sleep on the couches and, and kind of start start to kind of hit rock bottom uh, because he does this. But it, you know, for me, I'm just wondering, it's like, well, but you're living in the suburbs, right? You, you sort of see this as becoming, you know, it's like like uh, going to med school, as he mentions, and, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be this. And I'm, I'm just trying to see kind of where is the moment. You, you can see that he's a very bad comedian at this point. And I'm wondering if um, what the breakthrough is going to be to make him a good comedian, if he's going to have to get broken to be a good comedian, or if there's going to be some breakthrough about himself that we see that will turn him into starting to actually be funny. Yeah, so Sean, a lot of this is about the business of comedy, the business of trying to be a comedian. He's on one of the bottom rungs. One of the pressures on his marriage is the fact that he's pursuing this career in comedy. In many cases, he loses money because he has to buy two drinks in order to get up to the mic. <laughs> um, and and there, there is this moment where he um, – actually, let's play the Artie Lang clip because it sets up uh, part of the, this moment. So what's your plan? Well, if it's okay, I, w- I was just going to kind of camp out on the couch, maybe watch a sad movie. I understand. Sometimes when I'm sad, I like to watch sad movies. You know, seeing somebody else cry kind of helps me get a good cry going. Well, that's a good idea. That's a great idea. I think you should just sit here. You know, let, let me know if you need help crying later. I'll be happy to help you out. Are you a man or what? Be a man. Forget about it. Your wife left you. All a big deal. Suppress those feelings. That's what a man does. Keep them down. Keep them deep down. Distract yourself. That's what men do. You gotta make money. You can't have emotions and make money. Just keep a blank stare on your face. Do what you're told. Then one day, you have a heart attack. If you're lucky, you go clean. Go clean? Here's what I gotta do. I'm going to Albany. I got a gig. It's a benefit, but I get paid. You saying you want me to leave? No, what I'm saying is I need a ride. I could either pay somebody or you could drive me to Albany for free, and when we get up there, you do a few minutes up front on stage. You want me to open for you? No, I want your car to open for me. I need a ride to Albany is what I'm telling you. How much time do you want me to do? How long does it take to say here's Artie? (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that was just part of the clip. Okay. Yeah. So um, the reason that Artie Lang uh, and Artie Lang is a comedian who probably became most famous through Howard Stern, uh, but but is I guess a very well established comedian. The reason he's a little hard to understand in that clip is he has a cigarette in his mouth, which he never removes. I think for the entire one minute scene that you just heard. Um, and Sean, you know, more than a lot of these shows, I think this show also is a little bit about trying to make a living as a comedian. You know, I mean, obviously Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Louie, stuff like that. 
but they're like, there's a moment up in Albany, this is not a spoiler, where Pete, who has really done nothing to distinguish himself in his role uh, opening for Artie and being kind of a fake MC for this, this evening in Albany, is handed a check. And he opens this envelope and it's for $250. And it's like this miracle moment for him. I mean, this is a guy who's never been paid that much money for comedy in his life. And, and you can sort of see, I mean, that, that, that has its own power. It's not funny or anything like that, but you could maybe uh, people who haven't been comedians can kind of get something there. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you have a job where you make 1500 a week or something like that, just getting a $50 check in comedy is the biggest, it's the greatest feeling, especially at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like, it feels like because you, you feel like you're being paid because you're good. Even if you're not good yet, like they're they're acknowledging that you're an actual comedian. Like up until that point, you're getting paid. You're not really a comedian. You're just a guy who wants to do comedy. Until you get paid, you can't really say, I'm a comedian. But once you, now you can say, I've gotten paid for this. This is my profession. Even if it's not actually paying your bills. Like he's probably, that's just gas money. If, like, for what he has to do with his life, but like just getting just getting like ten bucks on a like a five minute spot is is amazing. And yeah, I do think uh, Pedro. There's a little bit. I feel a little bit of repetition coming up with some of these shows. Uh, I haven't seen Mulaney. I guess it's already over. You but, see it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I love John Mulaney so much. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I we watched a little bit of Lady Dynamite, and what it seems to happen to is there's this kind of cycling through that. Like, I know Vanessa Bayer is going to be on this series uh, crashing a little bit later. Sarah Silverman is, too. You look at all the people <laughs> who appeared on Lady Dynamite. It's like comedians and their friends over and over and over again. And I'm wondering, once again, I mean, the the, the choices he's made this time are a little bit different. Like, you don't see Artie Lang on a lot of things like this. That's true. And I think that, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if he, if he has a different perspective kind of on the, the sort of, uh, you know, work-a-day life. Uh, comedy genre um, that they have. And I think part of it is because he is kind of a fish out of water and really acting like a fish out of water and maybe bouncing off what these established comedians and how they react to him. I know in one of the, um, you know, they have these sort of like the making of at the end of each episode. And the first thing he said is, you know, in the genesis of the show, you have Pete kind of being, he said, taken in by this kind of misfit group of uh, comedians and, and how they all find their way to kind of take care of him and, and help him along. And I think that in some ways there there may be an additional message that maybe isn't in some of these other ones about sort of the the camaraderie and the life of comedians and, and how maybe that is that can be, uh, you know, a positive kind of heartwarming thing, which kind of flips off of Pete being that kind of positive, heartwarming guy. Oh, Sean, I want to swing back to you on that, too, because there's also a lot in this series about the clannishness of comedians, mm-hmm. about conversations you can't join in a bar because <laughs> you're not you don't have the same kind of status and, and about the whole the whole fact that Comedy itself, stand-up comedy, has this tremendous potential for hostility in it. The audiences can turn on you very easily. That I, I actually hear and see all the things that Pedro's talking about. But it's, there are always in dynamic tension with this notion that, you know, there's just a lot of hostility and fear that are, can come out in comedy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of the reason why, like, comedians, there is that clannishness, whereas, like, comedians are the only ones who get it. Even, like, musicians, we always say, like, my comedian friends, we always say, like, at least a musician has a guitar. You know, they can just play over the silence of people not enjoying them. And people will dance to some, a song they don't necessarily like. But a comedian, if you're bombing, it's very viscerally real. Like, in this moment, everyone hates you. Every cough, every time somebody's coughing, even if they're just 
legitimately clear on their throat, it's it hurts you. It's, a, it's like it's just it's very tough. So like comedians have a disdain for the audience and other just people in general. Like that's why comedians love hanging out together because like we feel like we're the only ones who get that. Like no one. Which is like a very like high school like, like no one gets us, but like we feel like that way, and that's why we like hanging out with comedians. Well, Lucy, I mean, obviously, this yeah. series—the title of this series—has about fourteen different meanings: crashing on people's couches, your marriage is crashing, your life's falling apart. But I think there's also the crashing of bombing. You know, I mean, oh, Pete, yeah. Pete bombs. Uh, you were talking about uh, seeing a pretty cana- pretty famous comedian in New Haven bomb recently. What was like that like for you as an audience? Oh member? yeah, well, um, it, so this was actually two years ago, but it was so painfully bad that it feels like it was just last night. <laughs> and I was actually in the audience um, as uh, both a consumer of you know performance and performance art, but also as a reporter, and um, and it was Tig Notaro, who's a, a pretty good comedian and has. Um, has really sort of been a role model for a lot of women in comedy. And so it was exciting for me. And she bombed and she just kept bombing and kept talking about how she had a show coming up in Boston. And, you know, often uh, people will do this in New Haven. They'll kind of get here and it's between New York and Boston and they'll phone it in. And for me, um, as, as both an audience member and a reporter, that's never, ever okay. But just watching her bomb, you did see this really interesting shift where the audience who had paid, you know, a pretty penny to kind of come and and see this person sort of turned. Some people got up and left. um, And and then some people stayed for the rest of the show, but really did not want to hang around for an encore or autograph signings or anything like that. And it, I I mean, Sean, I, I have so much respect for you as a comedian, because I know that probably putting yourself up there on stage is not easy. And yet, at the same time, watching her bomb was kind of this, um, it, it was sort of a miserable experience. Well, that's what's so interesting about comedy is like, it's going back to the music thing. Like, it's so hard for an established music act to bomb. Like, they'd have to have a, a serious like disdain for the audience where they're like they're intentionally not doing well because like. Where comedy is, cause nobody wants to hear jokes they've heard before. So it's if they're doing new jokes, there's, there's a much higher percentage that they're going to bomb. Which with music, you want to hear the hits. You want to hear if you see whoever, if you see Springsteen, he's got to do Born to Run. You know what I mean? Like whereas if you see Louis C.K., you don't want to hear jokes from his 2005 right. albums. So it's like it's every time you go up on stage, even if you've done a 20 city tour, it's you're doing these jokes in front of a new crowd and they may not do well and once an audience turns it's so hard that's why like when you're doing like showcase shows if one comedian bombs in front of you it's like oh this there goes the show and it's like but there's also that like i'm gonna save the show aspect where like the next comic i was like i got this and then they don't have it because it it's it's something that you can't even quantify like once that shift it's so difficult to get it back yeah and pedro i think for those i mean i've actually done some stand-up comedy earlier in my life too and i've had that exact experience the person who went on before me got the audience booing i'm thinking oh thanks pal (laughs) um they were booing him but it's you know that it's that mystery too of i mean for all of these comedians they're probably doing pretty much the same set in in 20 cities you know and they'll kill it in 17 cities and bomb in three and it's a mystery right Mm -hmm. there's no way to know why that is except i think in lucy's uh, description. There's a snowballing effect too. Something goes wrong early, and then this crystalline structure of resentment builds up. <laughs> oh, I, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, I think that it's uh, you, you can see it with with TJ um, 
Miller, and, you know, and he's, you can see him uh, in, in a few times in the episode, you know, he's talking, uh, he has the, the marijuana joke, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and it's, it's a great thing. And he's repeating it over and over. And because he tries to do something new and different in one environment and yep. it's not working. So he, he slaps back to that. So he thing, slaps right, right back to, to that one. And, and so, yeah, I mean, definitely as, as a non, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I've been a singer over, over time and, and, uh, you know, it, it definitely with singing, you had definitely have a lot of different, you're never going to lose an audience. You can always bring, win them back on the next song or something like that. But I think something with, with stand-up, it's, it is this sort of like back and forth wave of um, if you lose the audience, just like the air goes out of a room. I mean, I did see, I remember, uh, but when good stand-up works, I mean, it electrifies it and you're like floating on air. And uh, I saw when I was in, in high school, George Carlin mm. at the Schubert. Mm. And, um, you know, and he came in and he was late. And, uh, you know, he, he was, you, you can tell that it was a show that he had kind of squeezed in, but it was just absolutely fantastic. And you could tell he was, you know, there was some stuff you'd heard before and you'd be seen on you know, HBO or something like that. But, um, you know, he really knew at that point, obviously later in his career, just how to just get that room going. And, and he really did. But often so much anxiety goes with that. I, mm-hmm. A few years ago, I just had to kind of warm up an audience for Lewis Black. So I was backstage mm-hmm. with Lewis Black. He looked terrified. <laughs> and he could barely talk. And you know, he comes out on stage and he just, you know, pulls apart every supposition mm-hmm. that exists in society. And he's just completely in command. But he was looked like a man marching to his death. Um, so, Lucy, I, I want to <laughs> talk very specifically about um, a speech given by T.J. Miller. I didn't know too much about T.J. Miller. I don't watch... Um, Silicon Valley. Uh, he's one of the comedians who sort of, in a kind of grudging way, takes uh, the forlorn Pete Holmes under his wing. And um, so anyway, this, is, uh, this, this little clip includes a speech, a declaration that T.J. Miller makes about the role of comedians. I don't know what Pete told you, but I don't think you know anything about the details about why I did what I did. I know that he's a comedian, and what we do is noble. Then you should have supported him. Comedy is noble. You yeah. get on stage and tell jokes and make your whole life about you and everyone has to give you attention and praise you all the time. I'm trying to make people happy. What do you do? I'm a teacher. Well, see, and there you go. Your entire profession is b- The only reason people listen to teachers is because they have to. What, what grade do you teach? Third. Yeah, there's a lot of kids if you teach third grade that are never going to remember you. They'll never remember your name. What was your third grade teacher's name? Mrs. Callender. Oh. What you need to understand is that comedians are the new philosophers. You think you're a philosopher? Did Socrates ever talk about his nut sweat? Did Plato ever talk about jerking off into a trash can? I've had fans write me letters about how my podcast saved their life after they split up with their wife. So hopefully something that I do will make someone like Pete, who got totally f***ed over by you, be able to make it through their day for the next six months instead of giving up on life entirely. So this is a pretty extravagant claim, Lucy. But on the other hand, I think we're living in an era where uh, – let me just quickly – this is going to be – I'm going to be like Pete Holmes talking too much on his podcast. But when I was a kid, and I'm much older than you guys, I remember watching Ed Sullivan. And you'd have to wait, wait, wait through all this stuff. Who's this guy Elvis who's singing? Gets, when is the comedian coming out? I want to see the comedian. And you, know, you didn't get to see comedians that much. You, know? you really had to wait for them. And we're, we live in this incredibly comedy-saturated world in which there's just tons of shows on television. And there's podcasts where people talk for two hours uh, about being a comedian. And there's uh, uh, comedians in cars drinking coffee. And there's uh, David Steinberg had a show uh, for a few years where he just went around interviewing famous comedians about being comedians. I mean, there's comedy and meta-comedy and comedy piled on top of it. And I don't know about that claim, though, that comedians are the new philosophers. 
Whose side are you on? The ex-wife? Uh. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I actually think there's a lot of gray area, Colin. And, um, and I say that because I think when they are at the top of their game, comedians, not unlike other performers, and actually not totally unlike reporters, are kind of the truth tellers of society. And what I mean by that is if you're a good comedian, you observe people and people are where you get your material and and that you know if if you look at enough people i just heard um minjin lee speak at the institute library in new haven about her newest book and um she's an amazing author and one of the things she was saying was she'll sit down with a person and observe them and take 60 to 80 pages of notes and from that she'll maybe get three lines of prose and i'm not saying that every comedian should go around and do that because that makes one's task very very arduous but i think that if comedians really observe the world around them and their own behavior and kind of go in with this ability to be self-deprecating, which some of the best comedians, I, I mean, that's where they get their material. Um, I do think there's a degree of truth to that. That said, there are some comedians who are just not super good, who are not going to get out there and say something profound that's going to change my life or your life. Um, and, and that's okay, too. It's okay to have a laugh and not think about it in a profound way. You know, what's interesting, though, is that I think that in some ways, like the the bar to entry for being a comedian these days, I think is significantly higher because in some ways there is the expectation that you are that truth teller, right? That you can't walk onto a stage and talk about, you know, hey, or my, I just flew in here. My wings are tired, right? You, you can't do that type of uh, sort of old style comedy. Mm. Um, you have to have this. And I think, you know, in, 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 in crashing, they sort of have this, like you have to have this, um, you know, when people are saying like that, you know, that happened to you. It's like, yeah, that happened to me. It's like, but we didn't believe that it happened to you because of the way you said it. Right. And, um, you know, I think that there, there is an expectation. You can even go down, you know, Patton Oswald, you know, uh, you know, Louis, Mark Marin. in some ways you feel like you're getting a window into how they are, which is in some ways the genesis of all their shows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that without that, I think it's a lot harder to become a successful comedian these days. We're going to let Sean have the last word of this in this segment. This whole conversation is making him very agitated. Uh, <laughs> and um, I want to say that the Pedro has tickets to see Mark Marin tonight. So, Mark, if you're listening, you know, you know shout out Pedro from the stage. Um, Mark's not listening. Um, so I'll just react any way you want. I'm not going to prompt you. Oh, no. Um, I agree with Lucy. It's, it's definitely a gray area. But I think it's more like, as a comedian, I feel like I can't say I'm the new philosopher. Cause it's a very self-righteous thing to say, I think. But at the best... At the 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 comedians at the highest level that are doing it are in some ways f- philosophers because they're they're synthesizing something that we all recognize in the world that they they put it towards in ways that we couldn't possibly imagine. Like I always think my um when I'm ever dealing with kids and they ask me why, I always think of that Louis C.K. joke about how kids always ask why and it just dev- devolves into this like very absurd and he, it, it, it gets to the point where he's like. Like, why? Because things that aren't can't be. And it's like, that's how and I think every time I hear a kid say why, I think because like he, he and it's like I get upset that I didn't write that joke because I experienced it too. Because he, but he got there first mm-hmm. and he did the best version of it. So I feel like the best comedians, and not all of them, some, you know, what I mean, a, a guy like Stephen Wright isn't necessarily like he's a one liner guy, but he, he even you can see some of his intelligence and what his perspective on the world in his jokes because he's operate at the highest level but on the other hand there are some really bad comedians and there are comedians that aren't even necessarily attempting to do anything profound with their work or like aren't really even trying to explore something 
outside of their own like perspective. So well, there's also know. a sense in which as you climb through the club ranks, like I don't know how Stephen Wright ever got to be where he is, you know, because like if you go into a club now and go, I bought some instant water. I can't figure out what to add. You know, I don't know that that's going to – like in some ways, one of the reasons that some of the jokes might be about perspiration that collects on a certain part of your genital area is if you're working, you know, a tr- club where people are drinking, you're going to have to get their attention a certain way. And being a philosopher king may not be it. Well, yeah, it's, it's like this is – like you said, especially in the clubs, you kind of have to like punch the audience in the mouth when you get out there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's got to be like, why do I care about what you're saying is with the audience? That's how, you, that's how it feels to me, at least. Because, like, can't, I have to let the audience know that I'm worth listening to. Which is like, like you said, I'm amazed that Stephen Wright ever made it that far because it's like, like, through the clubs and like, not on like people know who Stephen Wright is. Of course, you're going to go see his one liner type of stuff, but it's like sitting through like, the comedy seller at eleven thirty at night doing one-liners. I don't know how he did it. Yeah. I mean, his jokes were that strong. Yeah, obviously, but it's like you could you can understand, like you said, why people do jokes about genital sweat because it's like it's it's a lot more in your face and easy to like. Oh yeah, I can see why that's funny. And even if you don't think it's that funny, it's like hey, I'm gonna perk up. He's talking about something a little bit unorthodox all right we're gonna uh, take a break here we gotta save time for an interview with david letterman that we i think all liked a lot so uh come back for that gonna try to make it with city life We're back. We're in exotic New Haven, uh, where there's a parking ban for no reason right, right now. Maybe it's over. It might, they may have called it off by now. Uh, somebody asked Doug. Um, all right, Lucy Gelman, a reporter for the New Haven Independent, station manager at WNHH. Uh, Pedro Soto, chief operating officer at Spacecraft Manufacturing in New Haven. Sean Murray, a stand-up comedian uh, based in New Haven. I got a real job. Yeah. <laughs> But too, for us, you're a stand-up comedian. We've, we've got to get you to your Hartford gig, too. I mean, I, I, I said I'd be working on that, right? I've done he, nothing for you. He's done nothing. Typical promoter. <laughs> All right. So um, David Letterman appears on the cover of the current issue of uh, New York Magazine. It's a lengthy Q&A. Uh, and I think – well, Lucy, you were saying that you – it was an interview that you wished would go on longer. What do you think – what made it work for you? Oh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was smart. I thought it was smart, and um, and it was kind of this – really quick back and forth that I think uh, reporters want in every interview they do and readers want to be reading in every interview they read. But um, I, I mean, I think Letterman just kind of opened up and said, here are the thoughts I have on a lot of different things. And I so enjoyed that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who watched a ton of late night TV um, or who watches a ton of late night TV. And so I don't think about that tradition and how it's changing and what its legacy is a lot. But I really, really enjoyed this interview. And I like I, I didn't want to stop reading it. I found myself smiling as I was reading it. Although Pedro, interestingly, one thing he says is that he doesn't watch any late night television. He doesn't yeah. have he claims to have no idea how Stephen Colbert is doing in his old slot, or how anybody's good. I hear Seth Meyers is pretty funny. To me, (laughs) did you find that surprising? Yeah. I mean, to some degree, it's... 
I, I wonder if it's truthful or not, or mm-hmm. if it's just something that he doesn't want to be the person to weigh in on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, in some ways, though, I think he, he left. He kind of left at the top of his game. He picked, he said, I'm going to leave. I'm done with this. And, you know, now I'm going to worry about uh, fishing and, and going to shoe stores and stuff. And, <laughs> and I think that to some degree, I think maybe in it speaks to the, sort of the type of person he is that it needed to be a clean break that he needs to just sort of exit. I'm, I'm done with that. That was awesome time. I'm going to go do something else right now and just kind of step away. Um, and Pedro, he he talks about, I really want all of us to talk a little bit about this. One of the, uh, obviously, the Trump word comes up pretty quickly and he interviewed Trump many times. Uh, and, and he says repeatedly that he'd like to take a crack at Trump now. He thinks he's got something to say about Trump. Although I wasn't entirely persuaded by anything that he said in that interview that he had anything substantive to bring to a Trump conversation. I think that's true. I mean, I think that he he doesn't you know, it it's the rare moments where where Letterman hits hard. Um you know, he's someone that tends to hit very smoothly and I I think that with 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 Trump, I don't know if he could if he could do if he could bring to to light anything that other people haven't been doing very well over the last several months. Well, Sean, it also feels like the style of comedy is shifting. And this is talked about a little bit by the guy who's interviewing him, David Marchese, um, that, you know, I mean, you've seen this new group of comedians, like Col- especially mm-hmm. Colbert and Stewart, who, who've come in, and it's it's really not so much jokes about his hair or Trump's hair or how mm-hmm. dumb George W. Bush is or how horny Bill Clinton is. It's it's it, They're painting a ver- on a very different kind of canvas, maybe, than what Letterman was used to. Yeah, I feel like guys like Colbert and Stewart and even John Oliver, Samantha B. I feel like there's a little bit more of an education to their their approach. Where whereas with Letterman or any of the old late night guys, there was they they tell the jokes that anyone else could tell based on what they know. Just mm-hmm. that they saw if they saw this person on the news for five minutes, they can get this joke. Whereas everyone else, like Samantha B. Or John Oliver, they expect the audience to be a little bit more informed, so they can tell a little bit more, like a, a specific joke about like Trump's, the details of one of his executive orders, and it hits just as hard because the audience is going along with that. I don't think Letterman would have a, I would, I, I, I would, I wouldn't mind seeing Letterman interview uh, Trump because he's he's Letterman, but I don't think he has anything particular to say to everyone because like I feel like that's one of my problems with the Trump thing is. You have to talk about this guy, but no one's really saying anything particularly outrageously funny. That's like I never thought about this. Like, <laughs> like you, everything that can be said about that guy has been said. Even if he does something new, it, his personality has been so dissected. I don't think there's really anything fresh that anyone can add to it. That same issue of New York Magazine has 117 jokes that have been told about Trump, uh, mostly by late night comedians, but not entirely. And there was a one of the earlier ones, and, and they, it confirms what you say. There, in some ways, there's not a lot of invention going on here. Um, the, but there was an amazing little routine by a woman whose name I didn't recognize, uh, a Latina comedian, and she talked about how scary it was the day after elections when white people, friends were calling her up to ask if she was okay or to reassure her that things were going to be okay. She goes, when white people are calling you up and saying stuff like that, <laughs> you know there's something very wrong happening, you know, and, and it was just a really terrific take on this. But, you know, Lucy, this kind of also gets to the question, what 
what does what can comedy do? Right. What does comedy do? You know, and what can you get away with? I mean, you you on the one end can be Lenny Bruce just hacking away at the foundations of whatever are the accepted accepted norms of society at the moment are. Or on the other end, you can be, you know, Johnny Carson operating within this kind of, or Jimmy Fallon, for that matter, <laughs> operating within this very comfortable bubble. But there's a huge middle ground that has been explored really interestingly in a, by different comedians in different ways. Well, and we're sort of drenched in it. I, I mean, you were saying as much uh, before the show. We're kind of uh, in this landscape where I think everyone feels pressure in the comedy world to maybe make some sort of commentary, or at least in the late night comedy world, to make some sort of commentary about Trump. And then there's this question of what do I normalize if I'm if I'm saying something, but also am I just recycling material? And um, and, and it is it is an interesting tension. Um, let's hear. Um, I, I actually do feel as though John Stewart found this place that nobody else has, had really found before, which is. Yeah, something very educational about what he did. I mean, you don't even necessarily know about this. I'm going to explain it to you and make you laugh at it more or less in the same breath. Uh, and somebody, one of them, were you the, who was the saying talking about how Stuart seems to be kind of doing this rambling? Oh, stuff. Me. That was you. Was yeah, he's kind of like popping in. Popping because, in. Because he doesn't have his own show right now. Yeah. So yeah, he just, he just kind of shows up and, right. and, you know, sort of coming down from, from the mountain to kind of you know, speak to the mortals. And apparently what you do is you grow a beard, whether you're David Letterman and you yeah. do a Walt, Mitt, Walt Whitman, <laughs> Chuck Close beard or, or Stewart's beard. Here he is on uh, Colbert on February 27th. Yeah. Oh, it's on American. Not that I like the press. Oh, you know what I say? I say stop your whining press. I say stop. Can I talk to the media for a moment? Sure, go ahead. Matt, which one of these cameras goes out to the media? That one goes straight to the, the media. Right yeah, it goes straight. <laughs> hey, hey, guys. Hey, media. So I heard uh, Donald Trump broke up with you. Stings a little, doesn't it? Finally thought you'd met your match. A blabbermouth who's as thin-skinned and narcissistic as you are. <laughs> well, now it's over. Well, good riddance, I say, kick him to the curb. Media. Thank you. It is time for you to get your groove back, media. Because let's face facts, you kind of let yourself go a little bit for these past few years. <laughs> Put on a few pundits, obsessing 24 hours a day, seven days a week about this one guy. What's Donnie up to? Did he say anything about us? You think he's going to come on our show? Do you think he even likes us? He doesn't even have to come on. He can just call us. Oh, Donnie, please, just let us know you're okay. <laughs> and the whole time you're chasing after Donnie, the rest of us are thinking, can't you see he's an ass? <laughs> No. So, well, that's that is you know that's John Stewart doing. I mean, I, I think he was sharper when he was doing it day after day after day after day. But the, you know, he, he's doing a kind of thing that nobody else does. Yeah. Well, I think also he, he you're right. He he opened up. He, I mean, he took the Daily Show and turned it from you know it was a Craig Kilborn, uh, you know, kind of comedy thing to this you know this speaking to the news. But I also think that. Where his genius is, and where I think Samantha Bee and John Oliver, you know, Larry, Larry uh, Wilmore have uh, took things to as well, is um, 
it's not just the sort of news news topics that they're talking about. It's the news process and the media as well. And John Stewart, if you watched any of his shows for any length of time, it was equal amounts talking about the politicians as well, but also just about the insane and inane ways that twenty four seven, you know, cable news had just destroyed the news process. And he's mentioning it here, and it pretty regular um, topic uh, uh, for him. And I think that um, that's really, I think, where, where things started to turn and where it says, you know, why are we even listening to, to CNN, MSNBC, and Fox? You know, these guys have nothing to say for 24 hours. I've got this half-hour show, which is, a, and he always says it, you know, we're a comedy show, but we can deliver more substantive news and opinion than, uh, than the talking heads on, uh, on the cable. Sean, I'm going to defer to you on this, but one of the things that I feel like I hear from Stewart, in addition to his massive intellect and his huge comic chops, I mean, this is a guy who, night after night, night would just use his voice in 50 different ways to get points across. But I was listening to that clip, and I was thinking about commitment, you know, which is a term comedians use a lot. You know, and with, like, when Melissa McCarthy is playing Sean Spicer, she's so <laughs> committed. There's just, yeah. can you imagine Melissa McCarthy breaking character the way Jimmy Fallon used to do? No, there's just nothing that's going to get her to stop stopping and Sean Spicer until the lights off. And there's a way that I think Stewart does that too, you know? Like even that clip that we heard, it's is all built on one artifice or one conceit. But he's not going to turn loose of that. You know, he's so embedded in it. I, I don't know. Is commitment the right way to talk about this? Yeah, I think commitment is cuz like like when he's like just give us one more. T-. Like yeah, he <laughs> like most people would have delivered the same words if he, if he gave that's like any other late night host, you give him those same words that he was going to say, they wouldn't have done that inflection with their voice. They wouldn't have stretched it out that way. And I think that's one of the things that made him, like, and Colbert, um, when he was on um, Colbert Report, they, mm. they had, he had the same level of commitment mm. where he would, like, he's not going to, he, mm. it's very rare that he would not break out of, like, I am Stephen Colbert. Even if it's someone who's, um, someone who you can't, like, how can you even question their perspective he would find a way to do it because that's what the character calls for mm. i think that's one of the good things that john stewart does really well but i don't stewart had an interview last year at the end of last year and he said i don't know what we accomplished on my show like did we really act like did we harm did we do just as much harm as any other media outlet as like you know what i mean i don't he's like mm. i don't know mm. if making jokes about bill o'reilly or george w bush actually accomplish anything because I, I feel like one of the problems with like late night just doing jokes about Trump is anyways because that we all kind of agree the, the audience you have kind of already agrees with you so what are you really saying that's not even if it's not even having necessarily been said before what mm. are you saying that's like it's just it's kind of like a self-congratulatory congratulatory thing where everyone's like yeah I agree with that you did a great job for saying that but it's like what are we accomplishing we're saying Trump is bad Okay. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to stop it there. Um, we, we were going to try to do this whole other sort of thing about comedy where we were going to even have even Sean coach us all up a little bit and see what, you know, <laughs> what comedy chops. We'll have to do that in some other show. We're, we're out of time here. We have to take a break. We'll come back. We'll make a few recommendations to you here from New Haven on the Nose. David Letterman. You're a funny guy. David Letterman. You're on TV all the time Telling funny, 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 funny jokes I'm David Letterman You are the hip, edgy, late-night guy 
Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, who will be performing at Magooby's Joke House in Baltimore, Maryland this weekend, and by me, Kyone Wolf. I'll be at Dr. Grin's Comedy Shop in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We had help today from Amanda Fish. She'll be at Tickle Me Sillies in Providence next week, Thursday through Saturday. Our interns, Hazel Cologne and Ali Oshinsky, will be performing at the Hilarity Hole in Knoxville this weekend only. The part of Bill Curry was played by Patton Oswalt. All the stuff we're not telling you is on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. Next week, the scramble kicks off the week with a three-part analysis of the weekend's news, including a conversation with Ayman Ismail, who debunks the idea that Muslims don't assimilate. And now, back to the nose. All right, we're back with Lucy Gelman, Pedro Soto, and Sean Murray. We're going to make some recommendations. Pedro, why don't you get us started? Um, okay, so as I was mentioning about uh, going back to the source material uh, for comic book movies, uh, tonight uh, there should be some tickets remaining. I checked just before I got here. Uh, uh, Mark Marin uh, is going to be at the College Street uh, Music Hall. Uh, you'll be able, you'll, you'll see me in the audience as well. Uh, but I think uh, the the show is rescheduled from the fall, so it's a, a chance to if you missed him back then or thought you missed him back then, uh, he'll he'll be there uh, tonight. Parking ban or no parking ban, but I guess park in a garage just in case. All right, Mark Marin in New Haven. Uh, Lucy Gilman, what have you got? Sure. Um, so I just finished Homegoing, which is a novel by Yaa Gayasi. It's a great, great book. Um, we're talking about comedy, so I, I hate to end here because the book is unending heartbreak. Um, I, when I finished it, I turned to my boyfriend and just burst into tears and then started reading it again. It's a really, really wonderful book, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, and then, Can the, you quickly say what it's about? Or what sure, the- sure. Um, so it begins in Ghana in the 18th century with two half-sisters, one of whom is married to a British officer who is uh, there as a colonizer, and one of whom is shipped overseas to the U.S. and goes into the slave trade, and it follows their families for um, several generations thereafter, up to the present day. So so we're in uh, 2000 something when when we end um, and it is just incredibly well researched incredibly heartfelt and I will say um, you know as a work of fiction it gets very very close to Ta-Nehisi Coates's essay in the Atlantic uh, case for reparations mm. that was published um, I think two or three years ago um, so I, I can't recommend it highly enough and then uh, very quickly um, Al Letson earlier this week uh, for the Center for Investigative Reporting did an interview with Sebastian Gorka, who is in Trump's cabinet. Mm. It was really, really good. I highly recommend it. It's under, uh, if you look up Reveal, which is the podcast for which he works. Hmm. All right. Uh, And Sean Murray, what have you got for us? Uh, There's a film streaming on Netflix, a Netflix original movie called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. It's a really dark uh, comedy starring Elijah Wood, and I can't remember the young lady's name. I wish she's... Elijah Wood's the more recognizable name, but it's just really—it's a really dark, funny story about this um, this woman who's just like kind of an outcast in her neighborhood, and she meets Elijah Wood because he's a guy who's she, he always walks her dog, his dog, past her house, and he, he never cleans up after his dog after she goes—he goes on her lawn, and they get into this real weird world of like um, trying to get back some items that were stolen from her, and it's just really dark and funny, and it's like it's the type of movie I don't think gets made enough anymore, and I think it's great that Netflix. Uh, Gave that the filmmaker an opportunity. It's this guy, uh, Macon Blair, um, and I also want to just say, if you like stand up comedy, uh, John Mulaney's great. He's my favorite. He's the best. I made a jab at his show because it was so disappointing to me. But him as a stand up, I think he's the best guy underneath like that Louis Billberg, David Tell tier. Like anyone for someone who hasn't even been doing it like twenty years or something, he's just got this like grasp on it that's like. 
unheard of. So, yeah, just and just support local comedy, you know, wherever you are. And just there's a lot of guys out there that you may not know their names, but they're really good. We're thinking Melanie Linsky might be the uh, woman. Mel- who yeah, said, it is. That's it. Uh, that. All right. So uh, I didn't really come up with that. But um, <laughs> all right. So um, I was trying to think of a good comedy recommendation. And this is sort of a, a good comedy, non-comedy recommendation. But last week, uh, John Oliver interviewed the Dalai Lama. Uh, and if you didn't see this, you should see this. Mm. I mean, like a lot of the things that John's, John Oliver does these days, it, it's not necessarily intended to be entirely comic. And obviously, he sets the whole thing up by both the precarious situation of Tibet and does, once again, some real education. I Like, I even thought I knew the Tibet issue pretty well, but he brought up some geography stuff that I just had never really thought about. And then they have this interaction, you know, and I, I've been to see the Dalai Lama alive twice for a time or two. Every bit as good as Mark Merrick. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, but so, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I have a sense of who this guy is. And uh, John Oliver really kind of did a nice job of getting to him. Now, I'm also going to break my rule. I try not to, like, plug stuff too much or, you know, particularly things. Well, anyway, so tonight and Saturday and Sunday is this project that I worked on with the Hartford Symphony. It is Lists of Faust Symphony, which is not performed all that often. What we've done is uh, create a script to go along with it, a series of monologues, uh, modern-day monologues of people talking about Faustian bargains they themselves have made and Faustian situations in which they find themselves. Uh, two amazing New York-based actors have come in, uh, Crystal Dickinson and Ward Duffy, who have come in to play those two roles. Watching my words get incarnated by these two incredible performers has been uh, really exciting. And then Jonathan McNichol, who produces this show, uh, produced The Nose, um, is, uh, he got involved too to create these two soundscapes that are also used, these kind of melanges of spoken word uh, that lead into two of the, the, that open the show and then lead into a, a different segment. So uh, there's several of us here who've done this. And anytime you get to work with the symphony orchestra, I mean, you know, the Hartford Symphony is full of these fabulous musicians who can do things that you and I don't know how to do. And so that's always very exciting too. So I'm sure there are tickets available. Uh, it's tonight and it's Saturday and Sunday. It's the Faust Symphony with some stuff that I wrote and some uh, producing that Jonathan did. Thanks so much to Lucy Gelman, who's a host at WNHH and a reporter for the New Haven Independent, Pedro Soto from Spacecraft Manufacturing, Sean Murray from Stand Up Comedy, and come back on Monday for the Scramble. Joking, talking about this and talking about that and talk about everything as a matter about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah